Thank you, Chris and crew. All right, um, well, it's good to see you all. If uh, you're new to Melanie Park Church, my name is Brian. Um, uh, typically, uh, I, I, well, I am the worship pastor. Typically, I lead worship. I'm just so thankful for a team of capable, humble leaders who could step in and serve in different roles in this church. And we just don't see that in worship. We see it all throughout the life of this church. Ministry at Melanie Park is not contingent upon one human person. It's contingent upon one human and divine person, Jesus. And we just get to step into different roles and humility and serve uh, wherever's needed. On your way in, uh, you should have been handed one of these cards. Uh, if you didn't get it, there might be some uh, in the back at the end. We are halfway through our summer series that, that we've been looking at powerful prayers in the Bible. So what we wanted to do was just give you a simple, practical tool that you can use in your own time with the Lord this week. What we've done is we've written just a short, simple prayer based upon the text that the sermon was preached in. So we would invite you to use this this week. You know, every morning for six days, just sit down with the Lord and pray this prayer back to him. Or if you want to go further, if you can go back and read the text and then either pray this prayer or pray your own prayer back to the Lord. Um, if you did miss a sermon or two this summer, we've included the link at the bottom. You can go back and listen to the sermons that Todd and Jeff have walked us through. So the purpose of this card and the purpose of this series is to help us as a church continue to grow in our engagement with God through prayer. We have a God that speaks to us, and he's invited us into this continual life of communication with him, and prayer is the way that we respond to him after we hear from him through his word. So we'd invite you into that. This morning, we're going to shift for the next three or four weeks, looking at some prayers prayed by the Apostle Paul. Anyone heard of the Apostle Paul before? So starting today and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some prayers that Apostle Paul prayed, some significant prayers that we find in the Scripture. Today, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1, so you can turn there uh, if you have your Bible. Hey, does anyone remember what this is? Does anyone remember Magic Eye? Back in 1993, if you were alive, uh, this was a very popular craze. Magic Eye was everywhere. And basically what would happen, you can go to the next slide, is that there'd be an image that if you look close enough, if you strive hard enough, there's a 3D image in this 2D collection of color and shape. Does anyone remember this? Is anyone really good at Magic Eye? Because if you are, I need you to come Tell us what this image is. So, Josh, you want to do it? Can we put you on the spot? Stand here or so, and we're going to give him a minute or two to see it. No stress, no pressure. Um, if you could see it from your seat, that's incredible. Can anyone see it from their seat? Dude, how did you see that so fast? Dude, that's incredible. Did, can anyone else see the shark? You can? There is a 3D shark. It's mind-blowing within this 2D collection of color. Josh was able to see beyond what we can see. It's amazing. And honestly, when I saw that this week, I said out loud, wow, that's incredible. Like the shark just pops off the page and it's transformative. Josh was able to see in the, the human natural sense a seeing 
beyond the seeing. But my question for us is, what if there's a seeing beyond the seeing in our spiritual lives as well? A way of seeing that opens up for us a completely new dimension, a 3D dimension of spiritual experience and understanding. And what if that seeing beyond the seeing was not something we have to strive for or strain our eyes to see, but what if that spiritual seeing beyond the seeing was just something the Lord gave us if we asked him for it? I believe that the prayer that we're going to explore today is just that. It's a prayer that, God, would you open the eyes of my heart so I can see beyond the seeing? I believe that the Lord has in this text for us just a powder keg of transformative truth that if we see it and if we grasp it, just might change our hearts and our lives today. So what I'd like us to do, uh, Chris led us in a great time of reflection. I'd like to continue that. I'm going to put on the screen a paraphrase, a a prayer paraphrase of verse 17 through 19. And I'd invite you to spend 60 seconds, just pray this in your heart to the Lord for yourself. Ask him today, right now, to do these things for you. Spend, spend, a few, spend a minute. Father, we come to you this morning uh, as humble children, looking expected, expectantly to our good and gracious Father. Lord, would you give us this morning eyes to see the spiritual truth that we need to see so that we can know who we are and what we already have in you. Would you open the eyes of our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like we do at Melody Park, we're just going to open the text and just walk through it. So turn, if you would, to Ephesians 1. We'll start in verse 15. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you, in my prayers. So let's pause there. Who is Paul praying for? Who is Paul praying for? Well, verse 15 says that he's praying for a church that is already full of faith and already full of love. He's, he's praying for a rooted and established group of Christians. And their faith in Jesus and their love for one another was apparently so strong that news of it spread to Paul, who was now 1,200 miles away from them in prison in Rome. They're in Ephesus, he's in Rome. He heard of their faith and their love. And Paul had been part of this church community some seven years earlier. He had seen the church birthed and had established leaders in this church at Ephesus. And he is so encouraged by the report seven years later that he heard that he just bursts forth into thanksgiving for God. So strong faith, rich love. Why doesn't Paul just stop in verse 16? Isn't that all the church needs? Strong faith and rich love? Why does Paul take the time to pray for Christians who are already rich in faith and love? The answer is because there is always more and more and more to experience in our life with Christ. We never get to a point where we have all the faith that we need, all the love that we need. There is always more to be developed and deepened. There is always more, always more to experience in our relationship with the triune God. Paul believes that 
So he prays for it. Let's go to verse 17. And notice the Trinitarian nature in this prayer. So Paul says, I pray, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know three things he lists off here, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So let's pause and unpack that together. First, notice that Paul says nothing here about circumstances, does he? Dear God, help Mary feel better. If you're Mary and don't feel good, I, I do hope that you feel better. Dear God, help Mark as he travels this week. Give him safety. Dear God, would you please fix this? Would you do that? Would you intervene here? Would you intercede here? Now, is there anything wrong about praying for God to work circumstantially in our lives? Absolutely not, right? Todd walked us through it last week where we see Jesus himself say, ask for daily bread. Jesus cares about the real needs of real people in real time. It's okay to pray circumstantially. And Paul would even instruct this same group of Christians in his letter uh, to Timothy, the first one. He, he instructs this same group of Christians to pray for peace in the world, to pray for their governmental situations, to pray for real needs of real people. So there's nothing wrong with praying for circumstances, but that was never meant to be the extent of our prayer lives. We see all throughout the New Testament, especially with Paul that we'll see over the next few weeks, models of God-sized prayers. Prayers that go much deeper than our circumstances. Prayers for God to do supernatural work deep inside of us despite of the circumstances around us. It's not that we shouldn't pray for the things on our prayer list. It's that there are deeper realms we're invited to plunge into through prayer. Paul models for us the type of prayer we most need as followers of Jesus. Prayer that we might see beyond the seeing. So have you ever been in a room with someone who just sees things different than you? This has happened with me uh, sitting in a room with the elders here at times. It's like, he just saw something and said something that I, I did not see. Like, how did he see that? In other mature followers of Jesus in this church, I've been in conversations and it's like, where did that come from? I completely missed that, but he or she saw that. Wow. God intends for all believers to increasingly be able to see things spiritually that we don't currently see today. And as we grow and as we mature in faith, I think he opens the eyes of our hearts to see things beyond what can be seen. And Paul believes that as well, apparently. So he prays for the Ephesian church that, Lord, open the eyes of their hearts, enlighten them, shine bright into their inner being. Bring illumination so that they can know deep down who they are in Christ. And specifically, Paul would go on to pray for two things. One, that they would know that they are called by God and that they would know that they are 
loved by God. Take a look at verse 18. I pray that you may know, Paul says, what is the hope to which he has called you. Or another way to say it, the hope of his call. Paul wants these Christians, Paul wants us, Jesus wants us to know more deeply than ever before that we are called by God. Because the more deeply you realize this, the more you understand the fact that God has called you, that reality begins to transform your life. And it fills you and fuels you with hope. If you're a Christian, I don't know if you know this, but you're only a Christian because God has called you. Nothing that you've done. He looked out across human history and said, you, 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 you are mine. God's calling is not a result of anything we've done. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up or get ourselves together before he called us. He called us while we were at our worst. Stuck in sin, without God, without hope, he called you simply because he wanted to. Paul is not praying that this church would get called. They've already been called. He's praying that they would know more deeply than ever before that they are called by God. But he goes on. He says, you're also treasured. You are deeply loved by God. Verse 18 continues. I pray that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So this phrase is a little confusing, but I want you to notice that it's his inheritance, not our inheritance. And his inheritance is in the saints. The text is saying that we, those who are called by God, are God's inheritance. God not only loves us now, but God longs for the day when he will receive his inheritance the gathered saints from every nation, tribe, and tongue, all of human history, living with him, enjoying his presence in the new heavens and new earth forever. We, his people, the saints, are precious to him. It's what he looks forward to receiving and enjoying forever. And to know that we are what he's looking forward to? Do you realize that God enjoys spending time with you now and looks forward to eternal time with you forever? He looks forward to the inheritance he will receive, the gathered saints from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So Paul is not praying that these Christians become loved or become the inheritance. They are the inheritance. They are already loved by God. Paul is praying that they know more deeply than ever before who they already are, richly loved by God. But then Paul goes on to pray that they would know not just who they already are, but what they already have. That is, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. This is crazy to think about. If you are in Christ, do you realize that you have the very power of God himself? The same power that created all things, the same power that rose Christ from the grave, as we sang earlier. If you are in Christ, that power resides in you. 
seems almost wrong to say, doesn't it? But it's true. God's power is available right here, right now, for those who believe. And then to make sure we don't miss the gravity of that statement, Paul spends the next five verses, verse 19 through 23, unpacking for us exactly what that power is and how it's available to us now. Starting in verse 19, he says, I pray that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In these verses, it's, it's crazy. Paul intentionally stacks up for us layer upon layer upon layer to help us understand just how incredible this power is for those who believe. Paul tries to describe in human language a power that is quite simply indescribable. So let's take the next 10 or so minutes to unpack what Paul is trying to show us. So here's layer number one. He says God's power is immeasurably great. It's not just power. It's not just great power. It's immeasurably great power. The NIV says it's incomparably great power. Nothing compares to this power. And the the term Paul uses here for immeasurable means that it's thrown over into another sphere altogether. Quite literally, God's power is out of this world. It's a power that is more powerful than every other power. It's of immeasurably great degree. That's layer number one. Layer number two is kind of fun. I picture Paul in prison. Somehow he got this Greek thesaurus, and he opens it up. This didn't really happen. This is just how I see it in my mind. He opens it up, turns to the page that says power, and takes every synonym for power that he can find and tries to put it together in one sentence. Take a look at this. This is fun. Uh, He says, uh, where am I? Uh, I pray that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power, so potential power. And then he goes on to say that that power is according to the working and effective power of his great might, exercise power, inherent power. Basically, in other words, God's power, as one translation says, is according to the energy of his great might. That's the, uh, the next slide, if you could turn there. The energy of the might of his strength. Basically, there is a lot of power stored up in this power. Right, so anyone in fourth grade in here? Anyone remember fourth grade? Kinetic energy, potential energy. What's kinetic energy? Yeah, energy in motion. It's all coming back to you, right? Energy in motion. What's potential energy? Stored up energy. Man, you guys are sharp. Smarter than a fifth grader, fourth grader? Is that the show? Yeah. So we've got, just an illustration, potential energy stored up, kinetic energy in motion. 
It's like Paul saying here that God's power for those who believe is like energy stored. It's potential. It's available, it's resting here, available for us to realize and utilize. But in order to know the degree of God's potential power for us, we must see it put into action kinetically. And the place where we see God's power put into action is most fully in the life of Christ. Which brings us to Paul's third layer, verse 20. The power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Talk about a powerful display of power. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, which is a position of supreme power and absolute authority. So what Paul is saying here, the, four, the, third, layer, the third layer, is that God has demonstrated his power in Christ's resurrection and exaltation. But verse 21 continues, gives us a fourth layer. Paul says that this power is far above all rule and authority, and it's far above all power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So not only has God demonstrated his power in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, but right here, right now, God is displaying his power through Christ's position over all creation in the present. So he demonstrated it in the past. He's displaying it in the present. Jesus has all authority over all things. He is not just above all things, the text says, but far above all things. Far above all things. You see how Paul is trying to use language to describe something that is just indescribable. But he's trying to get the point across to us of how powerful this power is for us who believe. It's a power that uh, is more powerful than every power of power. And then he goes on to, to, to use some more words here. He talks about rule, authority, power, dominion. These are different words that describe different types of power. So rule is a ranking power, like a king over his subjects. Authority is a relational power, like a father over his children. And then he talks about physical power and social and uh, spiritual power. The point Paul is making is that Jesus is supremely powerful above all powers of power. It's like, right, 10 to the first degree, 10 to the second degree, 10 to the third degree, 10 to the fourth degree. Jesus' power is beyond every power of power. Christ is exponentially more powerful than anything in all creation. Paul continues to make this point, verse 22. I want you to notice the, the over-under imagery and the, the head-feet imagery. He's continuing to make this point, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. Paul here is trying to paint a comprehensive picture of Jesus Christ's absolute power, absolute power above every power of power. Nothing can top him. All things are beneath him. He has no rival. He has no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. What a powerful name it is. 
So we've seen these four layers so far. Paul's trying to paint this picture for us, and he says, God's power is immeasurable. It's immeasurably great. And then he adds a layer to it, saying that God's power is the energy of the might of his strength. In other words, there's a lot of power stored up in this power. Third layer, we can look back and see this power demonstrated in the life of Christ. And fourth layer, we can look around right here, right now, and see God's power present, being displayed powerfully above every power of power. Does anyone feel the weight of that? I think that's why Paul takes all this time to unpack this for us, because he doesn't want us just to know God is powerful. He wants to feel the weight of the power of God. He wants us to see it, feel it, and know it. But that's not all. We've still got 15 minutes left. This next part is even more amazing. Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church. Is Paul saying that Christ, the powerful head who is far above all things, is Paul saying that this Christ has been given to the church? And if so, what on earth does that mean? What Paul is stating here is is frankly unbelievable. He's saying that Christ, in all of his power, Jesus Christ, the one and only, has been given as a gift to the church. And we, as a result, we, those who believe, now have access to the immeasurably great power of God. God's power is for us who believe. Let me say it this way. God is now dispensing his power to the church so that it can flow out into the world through the church. The power that is immeasurably great the power that was demonstrated in the life of Christ, the power that is being displayed above all creation, God is dispensing that power to the church so that it can flow out into the world through the church. That's incredible. But how can this be, you might be asking. That sounds a little bit strange. Well, Paul reminds us in the next verse what the church is. What is our relationship as the church to the Christ? He says in verse 3 that we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul gives us here two images that help us explain how this can be true. The church can realize and utilize the very power of God because we are Christ's body. Right? Have you ever heard that before? We're the body of Christ. If you finish reading the book of Ephesians, you're going to come across that image seven more times. This is a, a vitally important metaphor for understanding who we are as the church and how we operate together as a church. We are not an institution. We are a living body because Jesus is a living being. Where he leads as head, we follow as his hands and feet in the world. We are the body of Christ. But the church, according to this passage, is not just the body of Christ. We are also the fullness of Christ. 
He doesn't just lead us, he fills us. Look at verse 23 again. We are the fullness of him who, as we just saw, fills all in all. So this can be a confusing phrase. Commentators have gone back and forth as to what this actually means. But from what I can tell, the word fullness presents this image of a container. Of a container. We, the church, are the container that Christ fills with his presence and his power. And as the text says, just as he fills all creation, uh, he's present everywhere in a general way, he fills the church in a special, particular way. Christ is in us, if you read 1 Corinthians, it actually says that Christ is in us personally, and Christ is also in us collectively. He's in us, he's among us, he fills us by his spirit in a very particular, unique, and otherworldly way. And as Jesus leads us and as Jesus fills us, we, don't miss this, we, the church, become the means by which God's presence is experienced in the world, and we become the means by which God's power is dispensed in the world. It's like the church in all these local bodies all over the world, in this country, in other countries, on every continent that is. It's like the church in all these little bodies are distribution centers for God's presence and power. How does the world come in contact with the triune God? Well, through their interactions with Christians who are part of bodies that are filled with the presence and power of God. Let me say it again. Don't miss this. God is now dispensing. He's dispensing his power to the church so that it can be uh, expressed and demonstrated so that it could flow out into the world through the church. What an amazing privilege, this power we now possess. A power that we, as a church, can experience together as his body, as we live life together, the power of God is in us and it flows through us in our conversations and in our prayers for one another. The power of God is among us. And then it's a power that we can express to the world. To those who don't yet know who our triune God is, they can experience his presence and his power through the church as his representatives in the world. In this prayer, Paul's not praying that we get the power. We already have the power. He's praying that we would know more deeply than ever before the power that we possess right now in Christ. So let me ask you, let me ask us as a church, do we see that? Do we know this power that is beyond every power of power? Because I've been around Christians a long time, myself included, and there's a lot of Christians who do not consistently live in all the realities of who they are and what they have. Anybody there with me? Do you always live in awareness and uh, expression of who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ? For some reason, I don't know if we just forget about it or we just don't see it, or for some reason, we do not live in all the power that we possess in Christ in every given moment. So for example, how many of us on a regular basis give into the power of sin rather than 
utilizing and realizing the power of God that is already ours to break free, to walk away from temptation, to flee with the power that he provides. And how many of us, when we do fall and we do fail, how many of us confess and repent and run back to the Father who's demonstrated his power through the Son? There is power for us to realize and utilize resurrection power for us to have in our fight against sin. And how many of us on a regular basis shrink back in evangelism and shrink back in missional living rather than utilizing the power of God that is already ours to step out boldly as his representatives in the world, to tap into the power of the one who is far above every power of power, who is right now ruling and reigning in absolute authority above all things, why would we fear? Why would we shrink back when that a power, when that power is available to us now? And how many of us just simply on a regular basis find our spiritual senses growing dull? Has anyone, even this week, I've experienced dullness of my spiritual senses. And rather than tapping into the power of God that is present in our life together as community, I far too often isolate and withdraw from the only community in the world that is filled with the presence and power of God himself. Family, it's far too easy for Christians, even those who are full of faith and full of love, who are rooted and established like we are as a church, it's far too easy for us to not realize and not utilize the power that we already have. Think about it for a minute. How might your life be different? How might my life be different if we were to set in motion the potential power that we have? Like, what might change in your fight against sin if you rested in and relied on God's power rather than, rather than your own strength, which is far, far below the power that he has for us? And what might change in your engagement with those who don't yet know God, if you rested in and relied on the power that is ours? And what might change in your life as part of this body if you leaned into the power of God that is present among us as his people? So this is the point of Paul's prayer, that we would see more clearly with our spiritual eyes, that we would see more clearly and know more deeply what we already have in Christ. And the thing I love about this is it's not like we have to try to figure this out. It's not like the action step today, do not hear me saying that you need to find this power. It's not like we strive and strain our eyes to see the 3D image and the 2D uh, picture. We don't strive. We don't strain to get this power to see these things. We simply ask God to open the eyes of our hearts. We need God to make these truths real to us. So the question I was asking myself all week, I shared this with a, a group of guys this week, but the question I was asking was, why don't I pray like this more often? Like, if this is true that praying to God, asking for these things can help me see more deeply, why don't I pray like this daily? 
for myself. Oh God, help me see. My spiritual senses have, have grown dull. Would you open the eyes of my heart? Why don't I pray this for my friends, those that I love? Oh God, open their eyes, help them see. And why don't I pray this for Christians everywhere? As Paul was praying for the church 1,200 miles away. What more could I ask God to do in the lives of the people I love? Family, can you imagine what might result if the 200 people who call Melanie Park home, who are part of this body, what might happen to our spiritual senses if we were to pray this prayer daily, regularly, for one another, for Christians in this city, for Christians all over the world? What might happen if God chose in his will to answer this prayer? What might happen? So I want to end today. We're not going to sing a closing song, but we're going to spend some time in prayer. And I want us to uh, simply, we're going to pray this prayer. We prayed it for ourselves at the beginning. We're going to pray it for Christians in this church. We're going to pray it for our brothers and sisters in the city of Lubbock. And we're going to pray it for Christians all over the world. God, would you open the eyes of their hearts that they might know who they are and what they have. And then after we pray, I'm gonna guide us through this time. Jeff's gonna come up and introduce us to some new members. But I'm gonna put a prayer up on the screen. We'll probably take two minutes for each section, so maybe like six minutes or so. But would you pray this prayer first for Christians in this church? Maybe the people sitting next to you, maybe the people that you bumped into on your way in this morning, maybe people that you serve with in ministry here or people that are part of your home group, would you pray this prayer for your Melanie Park brothers and sisters? And then I'll transition us to pray uh, for Christians in Lubbock. But spend a few minutes praying for those in this body. Let's shift slightly now and pray this prayer for Christians in this city that we live in maybe for other churches in general or specific people, whoever the Spirit brings to mind, pray it for any followers of Jesus that you know in this city. And then finally, uh, let's pray this for Christians all over the world, our, our brothers and sisters, the inheritance of the nations that Jesus looks forward to enjoying forever. Uh, maybe start with some of our missionaries that come to mind who are uh, overseas, and then just if you need to pray generally for other Christians in other countries, you can do that. But if you know people, Let's pray this prayer on their behalf to the Lord.